Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show, where we niche down to a single person, think about their work, and unpack the rest. I am very excited about today because we are talking to Vijay Chatha, the CEO and founder of VSC and a general partner at VSC Ventures. Before I bring him on, I do need to hype him up a little bit because he is kind of the go-to startups comms whisperer in my view. He spent 20 years in the public relations and startup strategy industry and his PR firm has helped more than 600 VC-backed startups through 53 exits, 20 unicorns, and four IPOs. He also recently started a VC firm with Jay Kapoor, which we'll get to later, to invest in the startups that they advise, which is one of the first times I've seen a PR firm do that. So a bunch of questions. And before we get into too many of them, Vijay, welcome to the show. Natasha, thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. It's so fun to have people on that were kind of the first people you met in the industry. So VSC was, I think, the first dinner that I went to when I started reporting on tech when I was still at Crunchbase News. And I I still look back and very much appreciated the invite. And I'm also actually nostalgic of how fun those dinners were. We're bringing those back. So uh, be ready for more invites. San Francisco is already coming back. And those dinners are my favorite part. So um, hopefully we'll be doing more of those. Yeah. And also, I feel like the fact that you are also based in SF, correct? Yep. Yep. I'm up here in Marin. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I do feel like Marin is like the new cool place where all my sources slash bosses live. Um, And I'm I'm like having my eye toward that area, but it's good to see and talk to someone based on the West Coast as always. And I mean, I honestly really wanted to start with you and really how you got into this world where you're doing so many things in the startup operations and comm space. But, you know, you started 20 years ago. So maybe let's start 20 years ago and first understand how you kind of found yourself in this world. Yeah, thank you. So it started off in college. I went to school on the East Coast in Philly. A buddy of mine, a couple of friends of mine, actually, we started a company called Philly Tonight, which is this online website for young people to find out about nightlife information in their city. So, you know, clubs and art galleries and restaurants. And actually in that process of starting that company, we were looking for investors and advisors. And I remember... Elon Musk came to our school and spoke because he sold his company Zip2 oh. to a newspaper company, okay. Gannett, and 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 my co-founder at the time, Nahal, actually, you probably know him from ENIAC. Oh, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you guys are like a mafia, this group. But yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, we go back a long way. Uh, and we went to this talk and, you know, he, he was impressive and he helped us. He helped us with introductions and getting connected into the Valley, as, as well as many other people like that were very helpful in those days. And then the market crashed. We sold the company, you know, not for a great outcome. But in that process, I just reevaluated and just tried to figure out, like, what was I doing? As an, yeah. a young entrepreneur, like, you don't know really anything you're doing right. And then on top of that, you're like, what of all these things that I'm really not good at? Is there anything that I'm actually a little better at than the other things? And the one that sort of stuck out to me was like, I liked being able to communicate what we we're doing. And I think I was always a little ADD. So I tried to always help people get their story crisp and short. Yeah. And my philosophy is always like, you're going to lose people if you talk too much or if it's too complicated. So actually Nahal encouraged me to help him with his next startup as I was like thinking about business school. And I really just kind of came out to San Francisco, crashed on his couch, started going to meetings with him, started understanding all these stakeholders. He was talking to carriers like Verizon and AT&T and VCs and uh, trying to hire people and just listening to people and seeing what they responded to seeing what they yeah. got excited about, seeing where they kind of lost interest. It started to help me think about how founders need to get their story tighter and what mattered to people. At that time, when you were first, I guess, building the language of what would now be known as startup comms, 
tech comms, it wasn't as like sexy of a topic, I'm assuming. Like the kind of startup founder and the glitz and the glam and, and the, the Forbes cover. I guess to me, it didn't seem like that was as much of a thing then, I'm assuming. Is that true? Like what was kind of like the vibe of like yeah. even people caring about the stories of a startup, of a scrappy startup founder and, and garage garage days? You know, it's so funny because it's literally been an ebb and flow. So in yeah. the in the, right when we started our business in the late 90s, tech PR was very elitist, but very important. So we had our startup and then there was one in New York and they got all the press coverage. And when they the one that got the most press coverage got the most venture capital. You got the most venture capital, you got the best talent. And it was like this cyclical thing. And we yeah, never, we never familiar. had, the, yeah. And we never <laughs> had the most press coverage and everybody that was really just engineering driven was like, why don't we get attention? You can't buy, yeah. you get like a great article, you know, you have to know people. And it was very much a New York or Silicon Valley thing and know the right people. And we just always felt, I also, especially as like either not in the game or even just being like from the South Asian background of like doctors and engineers, we didn't know what PR was. We didn't know what storytelling sure. was. And so we're always fascinated with like, how do they get this done? And then basically the crash happened, okay, in 2000, 2001. And like journalists hated PR people, okay? When I sent out my <laughs> first pitches, people would be like, do not contact me until you can tell me your revenue. Oh, wow. Okay. And this was like a pre-seed or maybe even pre-pre-seed idea when you were pitching? Oh, these are like seed startups. Some, some startups that have like a million or two in revenue. So basically, dot-com crash. And yeah. then what happened at the same time, which we were, I was very lucky to be in, yeah. was the beginning of mobile startups. Okay. Right. So cell phone based content and media just took off right when the, the dot com died. And actually, a lot of people in San Francisco PR left because it was dead. Like the mm -hmm. industry cratered. And so we came. There weren't like stories to tell. There weren't stories to tell. And the journalists felt burned, okay. just like you can feel like with crypto right now. Yeah. They felt like they got taken advantage of with the pets.coms and the boo.com and these huge, we're going to have eyeballs as our valuation. And when everything crashed, those journalists felt like they were taken advantage of. And so when we came in the market and started pitching, people were very upset and angry. Like they were like, do not contact me. Do not email me until you have revenue. It was a good learning to help this next class of founders that emerged from the ashes, many of which actually weren't even in the web 1.0. Like they were just people coming in actually from telco. Like, hey, I worked at like Verizon. I want to do a media company. Yeah. And so it, the, the metrics got more sober and more about closing deals and making money. And then we got into like ringtones and then revenue from ringtones is a hot thing. Like, oh my God, you're making money in ringtones. And then it mobile content and the iPhone and then everything kind of blew up again. If we fast forward to today, if I may, how has the relationship, I guess, we're jumping a little ahead of the script here, but how has that relationship changed of like the startups that get the most press, get the most money and get the best hires? Like, do you feel like that has at all been threatened or has it ever not been the truth? I guess I'm kind of wondering. You know, it's kind of always been the truth, right? Yeah. I do think that there's an authenticity that the best talent in the world can now see through. And so it may not be the most publicity, but it could be a founder that's really smart and uses like Medium or LinkedIn or Twitter to yeah. talk about their business. And they're, that they're so legit about it. They're so deep on it that they attract the right people. It's also who the investors are and who are the angels. And that's a signal, right? So you may hear about a company that's in stealth. There's no website, but the right VCs behind it super excited about it. Everybody wants it because there's nothing on there, right? It's the scarcity marketing principle. So yeah. it's, uh, there's these things that are nuanced, but ultimately I always find that the most flow goes to the top. And to be at the top, you have to be known and you have to create a category. And then lastly, like I think it's a, a dangerous thing. It's like water. If you don't have publicity, you can dehydrate. But if you have too much, you can drown. 
right? And so we see this with FTX right now. Yeah. We've seen it with Theranos. And also it could actually taint the founder by getting too much press. And then they start to believe their headlines a little too much. And then it becomes a Frankenstein situation. So that's an extreme case. 99% of startups will never get that much press. Yeah. So it's actually more about just getting a little bit of a sip of water here and there. But it's interesting how the extremes work. It is. And, you know, as you were saying that, I'm thinking about, I don't know if you saw the, the post that Bill Gurley published yesterday about red flags in venture capital, but he noted how, you know, one of the most dangerous scenarios are the ones where a company is claiming that there's this significant paradigm shift. And I was like, perfect timing. I want to ask Vijay about this because there is a pressure as a startup. And this guy kind of brings us to what I'm guessing. And I'm curious what your clients are thinking right now of like, we don't want to tell you about a trend you've never heard of, or we want to tell you that this is why our company is different. And even though there's been so many competitors in the environment, like this is the insight we have. And there feels like there's such a fine line and, and a broken trust between the startups that want to pitch you on their future, understandably so, but also don't want to over pitch. Right. And I, I always am curious how you do that job because, you know, we are on the receiving end, but you're on the building end of people creating those messages in the first place, I'm assuming. I always tell the founders that there's a difference between how you pitch an investor and how you talk to the rest of the world, including talk to the media. Okay. And I say, look, talking to investors is talking about the big vision, the disruption. They don't want to just hear like, hey, I think I'm going to grow this thing, you know, 2x a year. Like, I, it's not going to be disruptive, but I think I'm going to be good at doing it. And we're going to make a lot of money. Says nobody, yeah. right? And so, <laughs> right. so like, it's, it's a classic thing in marketing that if it works for one person, you think it's going to work for the next person, right? Yeah. And what I say is like, it's the exact opposite. Journalists are jaded. They're critical. You use the same words you use to raise the money. You're going to get like laughed out of the room, right? So talk to that person, like the most critical, like uncle in your family who you see at Thanksgiving, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the one like that prepare, comes in, prepare for that and be like, you know, um, he's like a no bullshit uncle and I'm just going to keep it real for him. Right. Yeah. But it's different than the investor. So we have to like actually make messaging frameworks that are for different audiences where the founder has to really think about changing how they say something so that it, it actually comes across with authenticity while still also catering to this other group that cares about the TAM and cares about how big yeah. it's going to be eventually. Usually the mistakes are made when the founder doesn't doesn't think differently about the stakeholders. Yeah. Does it ever mess with you the idea that like, I guess it's part of the job to, to be able to be someone who can do both. But as a journalist, I'm like, oh my God, I want to hear you. I want to hear the kind of transparency you're telling your investors. I want to hear you tell them, because I'm guessing in those VC meetings, they're asking about all your competitors and founders are giving answers to every single competitor and why they're messed up. And, yeah. and then they come to me and sometimes I feel like the opposite happens where it's like, I ask the hard questions and they're prepared for them, but they're a little too prepared for them. And this gets into a little bit in the weeds of like the different vulnerability we yeah. see. And so right now, are your clients early stage, late stage, all over? They're all over. They're all venture back. So everything yeah. from pre-seed to basically pre-IPO. Yeah. Okay. So, so they're probably, I mean, depending on who you're talking to then, different level of vulnerability and even like, I guess, incentive to be vulnerable. What's your temperature on how transparent people are being right now? Well, I'd say that first of all, it also depends on the founder. Is this their first startup, their second, their third? Yeah. How successful have they been? In general, what I find is the more successful and the more wisdom you have, the more transparent you are over time, possibly even cynical, right? But the first time <laughs> founder, you know, they're under a lot of pressure that whatever the VCs or their hired people around them are telling them to do, they got to do. They're very concerned with the competitors. They're reading this stuff. Hey, we need to do better than them. This and that. Yeah. As you get more mature as second time, third time founder, those things become less important and it becomes more about what you believe in and why the people that have joined your company are there. So like a classic yeah. example for me is Manish Chandra at Poshmark. 
Mm-hmm. He had a first startup. He had a decent exit. wasn't like life-changing yet. But then in the second company, he really thought about what he wanted to build. He built his whole company around love, which again, it's like, what does that mean, right? But he was writing personal letters to people on the platform talking about how inspiring they are in their lives and sharing, letting the community share each other's stories with each you know, what they're talking about. Somebody has cancer, other people crowdfund the trip for them to come to the Posh Fest. And it became a like, it was not the brand, it was this like ethos and culture. Sure. And then he then shared that with the investors. He shared that with me as we're helping him with the story. And it, it became much more thoughtful around authenticity of why is he doing this than just making a, a buck, which is often the case with the first time founder is they say they want to change the world, but they also got to pay the bills. Sure. Second time founder, they start to think more thoughtfully around who they want to be. And if you find a first time founder that is that authentic about who they want to be, that's amazing. Like that's very rare, but it's also transformative. People want to work with those kind of folks. Yeah, that's a really helpful anecdote because I, I do struggle with the idea that like, Again, this is where I think incentives sometimes clash, where it's like, I understand how like a historically underrepresented or overlooked founder may not feel like they can be the same level of vulnerable or, hey, I messed up as a white male founder who like maybe will already get funding. If we look at some of the failed founders who do get their whatever second, third, fifth chances while others don't. At the same time, I'm kind of like, you know, is it ever like something that you think contributes to the hype to make it okay or to advise even like, hey, it's okay. You don't need to be super forthcoming about these things right now. And you can just talk as vulnerable Mm -hmm. as you want. I guess I'm just wondering if we're going to see in this current moment where a lot of trust has been broken, sure on the journalist end, but I would say more importantly on employees with their founders and that internal comms. I'm so curious about how you're thinking about it these days. I think that they're the most scared about media in terms of like being real and they're more real internally and they're getting more real on social media in some cases. Which is interesting to me yeah. because like social, I'm I'm looking at all the socials, but yeah. I sometimes see people tweet a lot more viscerally than they will during an interview. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, it's a good question. I think that generally, the, here, here's, I'll tell you why. Yeah. Sometimes with the media, you're worried that if you say something transparently, that the, only a part of the clip will be taken and it could be like put out in some way that is not the way you wanted it. At least with social media, you basically control the context, right? Yeah. So I think that's why you're seeing a little more authenticity there because it's fully controlled, which we, we under what we call social media, right? Their own media could be like a newsletter, whereas earned media is like, okay, I'm. It's going to be risky. It could be high risk, high reward. So let me be careful to make sure I don't make a like a foot fault. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that that's a good point. Let's talk about earned media and talk about how your relationship with it has changed because. The world we're in right now, to your point, there's like the internal comms, there's the people who have started their own blogs, their own podcasts. And a lot of founders, pretty smartly, I would say more last year than this year, began building in public and just, you know, sharing their funding rounds directly to audience. What do you think about that movement? And and if at all, it clashes with your job even. Yeah. So just to kind of break it all down, like there's a couple of things that have changed. Yes, give us a framework. (laughs) Yeah, like like last 20 years, right? So what has evolved is beyond earned media, There's now social media where founders are talking directly to their stakeholders. There's owned media. So you see people like Andreessen with their own content or podcast or newsletters. So you have this, all these different tools. Then there's internal comms, which is very important now because there's so many people, thousands of people, maybe hundreds of people, dozens that matter to the business. And how do you speak to them transparently? Which channels do you use? And then there's culture comms, which is like, how do people think about you, right? Like Glassdoor, I think is it nobody talks about it. It's like the biggest 
signal of a, of a company's brand yeah. is, is yeah. what, it, and most founders I talked to like, what? Someone looking at my glass door? Like, I didn't even think about it. And so these are the evolution aspects and you could call it either the toolboxes yeah. or the signals or the areas that you have to be aware of that's changed in 20 years, right? And then when I think about like sort of earned media, like what's changed is back in like when I started this thing, people are like, you know, BSC, we want you to help us with this PR because we need to drive downloads of this app, right? Like mm-hmm. that's totally changed. Like people don't expect their firms to drive sales directly or downloads. Okay. They understand that they can do that with Facebook and buy ads or, you know, some mobile app marketing services, or they can use, you know, they can basically, there's paid media now, there's performance media. And a lot yeah. of the early days of PR was, oh, I did this announcement and we got $2 million in sales. And and now every month I need my PR firm to drive me the sales. That is like the worst kind of engagement for a firm to get into because it's not sustainable, right? Yeah. Um, well, thank God on your end, I'm guessing, for people to have like, I guess like it's matured enough that that's not an expectation. Yes, absolutely. And we all know that. Like if we read an article, we're not immediately going on to buy something, right? It's awareness. Right. <laughs> and, and you think about, so I think that the expectation has shifted about what earned media should be. And the big ones are, Natasha, like I want investors to know about what we do. I want like bigger customers, possibly enterprise. So the B2B world of PRs has really accelerated in the last like 20 years because all these niche businesses, I do this robotics thing. I do this SaaS thing for accounting. I really need those people to know. And then the last thing is with, I'd say investors, but also recruiting, right? So there's so much great talent and there's so many options. Even in this downturn market, if you're really talented, there's still a hundred companies that want you. And if you're like an amazing scientist or a data scientist or an AI, you have so many options. So now you're like, I want to know the who am I going to work for? What is like inside there? What's their glass yeah. door? What do they blog about? You know, what how do they represent themselves? And so recruiting and investment are still the top two goals in many cases okay. for a lot of companies. And then there's more like higher level goals as you get bigger, like perception in the market, right? Sure. Positioning in the market. Like, are we in the right position? Because you know, every now and then a business becomes uncool. Right. Like I remember hardware, can't fund hardware, you know, or e-commerce oh is dead, you know. So and sometimes these founders need to also think about, are they in the right category if they want to achieve those other goals we just discussed? Yeah. Well, and I want to stay on the goal topic because I'll tell you with my stories, you know this, but I feel like the way I approach these stories is like, I know, I know what a founder kind of wants to get out of it. Probably my goal is to try and explain why a company is like worth a reader's time with the tensions that exist in the market today. Whether that's right now, this downturn, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's, you know, an uber-sized competitor. And it's something I struggle with sometimes because it's, it is this weird thing of like, I'll ask a question, but they want to answer it so they can recruit. But I want the question answered so I can offer the tension. And I always wonder like, are we getting closer or farther from that? And I have a theory, but before I, I share my theory... Or I guess I will share my theory, which is like, I think vulnerability has become a lot harder. And there's even more pressure for founders right now to deliver on their goals than maybe during a bull cycle where they could afford to be a little bit off book. I feel like I'm seeing it, people clam up a lot. And I'm, does that line up with what you're seeing? Um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty in the market right now. And you can't rely on constantly getting funding stories out there right. to build your brand, right? And you can't keep saying, oh, look, I have this valuation. Because guess what? That valuation is going down. It's actually one thing we always tell founders. We, we, I was anti this whole like talk about your valuation thing. Oh my gosh, yes, we, we need to talk about this because I'm obviously pro. Let's talk about the valuation. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like, look, that's just a number in time. And, it, and I, my feeling is once you put out one, you got to keep having a higher one out there in the market. 
and that's not going to sustain. I mean, Amazon's down like whatever percent this year. How can these startups? So it's, I think it's very dangerous to talk about valuation, but all of a sudden it became in vogue again, like yeah. kind of around the SoftBank era when yes. they started pumping money and creating Insta unicorns. You know, and I, we had fights with our founders and look, I hear you, you raised 172 million. Like, I think that's enough to say. Do we need to say that we're worth 2.2 billion now? Like, does it matter? We have not that much revenue. And it was a fight. And some of them were smart to not do it. And, and as soon as you do it and you don't hit the goals, you get attacked. And you're like, this company, the once unicorn has fallen. And so like, yeah. it's not a sustainable play. Um, and look, one day you're going to go public or get acquired and people will know your real value. And so I'm anti that because that's not sustainable. But it's like a new generation. People make the same mistakes, you know, every 10 years. Yeah, and right. Everybody gets caught up in the greed and the FOMO and so-and-so did it. We should do it kind of thing. I flip-flop on it too because it's like the so-and-so did it is definitely interesting. I think so is the, okay, you, you come to me when you become a unicorn, but the next time you raise, you decline to disclose. And I, in some ways, I think that it looks even, it looks even worse because the no comment means so much at times. And yeah. I, I know there's probably a strategy behind it. You don't want to say it was a down round or even a flat round. But then again, asking founders to fall on their sword a little bit is I, I do, I, I have this goal of like, if we talk about those challenges, doesn't the startup market feel more realistic and human over time? And yeah. I, I even mess up because of course I would write the lead of like, once a unicorn, this startup has now raised at a lower valuation. And I get why that clashes with the goals you just mentioned. I also think that there's like this greater good that I try and live by as a journalist of like, if we get a window into the startup that everyone was like, it's still growing, but maybe it's just not raising it in an insane valuation anymore. Is that too optimistic of me? <laughs> I think it's super important to be a critical of companies. And I think the role of journalists in our society is more important than ever. In a world where people are pumping themselves up on all those other channels, yeah. someone has got to hold people accountable. And frankly, if you ask any founder out there, uh, yeah, they don't want to be the one who gets corrected in their article but they are really appreciative when their competitor is corrected. And it's like, see, I told <laughs> right. you. Like I you told enjoy, you that would like, happen. Yeah. The tension of it, totally. Exactly. So I think it's really important, the role of journalism right now, more than ever, right? And I think we are also seeing a world, actually, Natasha, if you think about like the B2C world, like yeah. there is a lot of quasi weirdness out there about publications and buying this listicle thing. And these are like, this is a paid promotion like links. And like, there's a real separation to me now of like, like really legitimate media. And then yes. this like quasi zombie brands that have kind of, are these still magazines or not where you pay? And so I think it's just more important than ever. And, and a lot more for us to be educating the founders on about why this kind of level of detail and, and sort of analysis and tough questions matter. In the end of the day, that's where the respect comes, right? From everybody yeah. is to know that, hey, if we're going to talk to this publication or this person, like they're going to ask tough questions and we're going to have to be better at our business if we're going to go into this. I appreciate that hopeful note. And I always tell this to people too, if they like are kind of coming to me after I publish a story and they're not happy that the six points they wanted to be mentioned are in there. I'm like, there's like, I think if they wanted a press release, they could have had a press release. It just wouldn't show up on the site under my name ever. And I, I actually, I, I don't think founders are surprised by that anymore. Maybe when I was earlier in my career, I felt a little bit more like people trying to like talk over me or explain to me what a series B round was. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> but, but now it, it, it's, it's kind of like the lights came on at the club and everyone's kind of like really sweaty and is like, oh, we were all just kind of partying for the past two years. Like, let's like make eye contact for a second and talk about it. Because I think people realize that it doesn't sit super well you know, even like, let's talk about layoffs for a second. It doesn't sit super well, even if your competitor was the one that had the 20% cut to 
dance on their semi-grave. You know, I, I yeah. guess like I, I'm hoping and I am seeing kind of like a maturity in the market. I'm yeah. and, and FTX obviously added this whole twist and, and I'm sure you're like unpacking it internally too on what it teaches founders. You know, amazing. Nobody talks about this, but I've seen it is that I'm just going to go off the topic for slightly a bit that yeah, please, one of please, the please. biggest thing that's happened in our business is the Me Too movement. Okay. So the Me Too movement, trans, it went beyond just sort of harassment mm-hmm. into just general like attitude and behavior of executives. So before that movement, I would say you could ask any comms firm in the Valley or in New York, one out of five or two out of five of every one of these companies often had just asshole management right? Somebody that was so toxic, but there was no glass door yet. And there was no like social media and they were just terrible. And like, they would look around for PR firms all constantly shopping. You're like, why is this person always looking for PR firm? They're like very successful. It's like, cause yeah. they basically are so toxic. And when the me too movement happened, we saw a complete change in the market. It's amazing how many more like the, the relationships have improved. People are better. And yes, look, you're going to see press about the big ones that Theranos and FTX, but I will tell you across the board, behavior of founders has improved dramatically. Behavior of investors has improved dramatically. There is more ethics and there is more of a concern about like, why does this matter in society? And like, what is the right time to talk about things and authenticity that I remember? Like, it's only getting better. And yeah, these mistakes and these big companies that, that are imploding are great lessons, right? You need to have them to shake up an industry. But the, nobody talks about how the Me Too movement has really created a whole shift and management style for men and women. And I think that's something that we should be very happy about. I actually hadn't considered that too. I was, so I was at the Boston Globe. I was an intern when the Me Too movement was happening and I was on the business desk and I was kind of just like not yet ready to take on those stories. I was just watching them unfold and it was just like heaviness after heaviness. And I, in a way, I'm so used to now news cycles and these big moments of collapse, taking over a news cycle and then kind of disappearing and becoming like a thing you add on a list. But I agree with you that the Me Too cycle has actually stayed to me. Yeah, it's stayed in mentally in my background, but also in conversations, just like the way it's changed, the way people think about what a leader should do and be like. I also think the Me Too movement, now that you bring it up, it, it probably fundamentally shifted how a employee feels loyalty towards its employer. I have found in 2022, that's the year, right? Um, that so many of my stories have come from employees currently or formerly at companies so frustrated that they are now willing to speak out. And, you know, there's a negative bias there, sure. The people who get laid off are going to say really intense things. And I do think we need to think about the bias of the tips we get, separate conversation. But it it kind of goes back to comms and how to handle an employee base that now is thinking about their employer, not just kind of, this is my mission and I'm going to be at the startup and help it join, become a rocket ship. But hey, we're in a different world. You just laid off 20% of staff. I have a really high bar for you Mm -hmm. now as my boss. Absolutely. And I'll tell you another interesting, but this is everything, all the trends happening at once. I know, right? I'm like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> like even just thinking about things like work from anywhere, right? Or remote work versus in, po- in yes. office, like the amount of what kind of incidents happen, you know, when it's remote, when it's only remote work versus in an office, are they different? Are they new? It's just interesting. Like the things that we would deal with in our offices, they're not the same things we deal with now, right? No one's worried about what you put in the fridge or like what time somebody left at 4.30 versus 5. Like it's just a different world now. And so even just seeing culture shifting in that regard and how do you how do you communicate your culture when it's now over Zoom is also like a whole new challenge that we're trying to figure out too. But again, the world's changing. 
all these different toolboxes matter, right? So yeah, it's exciting. It's almost now the founder needs to know how to use the right tool for the right sort of goal. Right. It's a lot more sophisticated. Well, let's keep talking about tools because VSC did something super interesting last year, which is they launched a venture firm. To me, it's the first PR firm I've ever seen do this and mix it in such a big way. And I want to hear, I guess, like it's almost been a year, if I'm correct. Yep. It's almost been a year since it happened. How, how do you think about that choice and how it's kind of aged too? I'm sure it's all been exciting, but I would love to hear how you've been thinking about the venture arm. Yeah. So the one privilege I've had in this business is I get to spend time with amazingly brilliant people, right? Whether it's the founders or the investors or science teams or the anybody in these startups. I have learned so much more, Natasha, in like per year than I ever learned in college or anything else. Yeah, many MBA each time, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. And I think the more you spend time with people, the more you understand how they build a business, you start to see the parts about why are they fundraising now? What are their issues internally? How do they fix them? And I'm like, wow, like I think we're becoming more than just publicists. I think we're starting to understand company building. And so then my wife and I started angel investing. So we've done like over 100 deals. We've LP'd in like 12 funds. And then even more learning, like let me sit down with some of these great investors like you know, shout out to NFX, James Courier or, or Chris Farmer, many others that we work with, yeah. Sequoia, India, and like just amazing like company builders for the years. And we're like, okay, this is what we want to do now. We want to start becoming company builders, but let's take it from our one area of strength, which is communications. And like, instead of like Andreessen who started as an investor and added services, what if services could be an investor? What if we do the reverse Andreessen? And that was kind of the vision is like, let's take one thing that each found, like we know founders need probably five key things. Like if we yeah. just do one thing well, could we help them company build? And that was really the thesis of VSC Ventures, right? It's that we could provide that value add. And unlike most funds, they'll help a startup with like one announcement maybe, or they'll make an introduction to you. Great, that's a starting point. Some funds don't have anybody like that. But our job is to take them all the way through that process for years, right? It's yeah. like have them, you know, we're in the cap table, but we're also working with them every week. So the idea was, could we provide like a tremendous amount of like time and effort in addition to that check versus just maybe see them once a quarter or if that. Yeah, to me, like seeing that news happen, it trusts what you're saying because it's like to even be able to ask for that and for it to feel natural, I think is like a huge sign of where the industry is today. It's it's not just like a shoulder or a speakerphone. It's kind of like this startup advisory role. So I'm kind of surprised I haven't seen more PR firms do it. But I also think that if we add in the downturn, I'm sure people are also, like you said in the beginning of our talk, a lot of PR left during the bust because there weren't as many stories to tell. So I guess I was curious too, like VSC now having a venture firm and having clients just for the PR side, how does that age in a downturn? Like, is that the similar kind of thing that might happen? I'm guessing you guys aren't leaving yeah. anytime soon, but just how you think about it. It's a really fascinating question. The interesting thoughts are first in the 2000 bust, what also happened was the VCs were dead, many of them. So while the, like the market died, like the, the capital is gone. This is different. The markets are correcting, but there's tons of venture capital on the sideline. And there's probably even more coming from more sources as like crossover funds are trying to do seed deals now. Yeah, that's a good right? point. So the, the value of being out in market and still owning your category, if you're doing well, look, some companies need to cut and like figure their business out. But for the ones that have, have some business going, I feel like there's a more of a need. So what happens is the VCs scare the founders, they all cut back, and then they FOMO, they see a competitor out there who's getting all the attention. They're like, holy crap, now we're behind. We need to like double down on this thing. It happened with COVID in 2020, right? Everybody said, we're freaking out. We're going to cut back. And then everybody doubled down on their awareness, marketing, et cetera. So totally. Come August, right? Ugh. This year, the same thing. 
everybody said the doom and gloom, the Sequoia, you know, memos out in April. (laughs) Yeah, we're all like freaking out. And then all of a sudden come August, everybody that had a business is pushing forward. Now, I don't think it's exactly like COVID. We're going to see ups and downs for the next year, probably. But generally, this whole idea that the, the YouTubes and the Ubers were founded in the downturns is true. And I think of the companies that have a business, they're going to need to still grow and they're going to still need to get the word out. So I think that that's something we've seen. The second thing is like we've added more parts to our business. So we have an in-house content studio. We make videos. We do video marketing. It's been actually very effective. We find the right people to watch these videos like using LinkedIn. So like if you're a biotech company, we can help make sure it gets in front of the CIO of Merck, right? Or the head of research at you know, Moderna, right? Like that has never been done before, before LinkedIn add that capability. You have to go to trade show three times a year and hope these people (laughs) saw you. And so we're doing more with culture. So like helping them understand how to build a glass door page, how to make blogs, how to like make little videos. What is it like to work here, right? In engineering or in data science. So like our toolbox is also evolving because it has to work for all their needs. And I think in the downturn, what are we going to see? I think it just depends on the companies and also vertical. So one thing that not enough people talk about is this is like a multi-form correction. It's not just the interest rate thing. It's also Apple. Apple's come down hard with yeah. Ask App Not to Track and they've decimated e-commerce for a minute and they may keep going. It has nothing to do with interest rates, right? And so each industry also is having different moments. On the flip side, we're investing in companies like PaintJet, another company called Presso, which are using automation to solve labor supply shortage in hotels or in industrial painting because there's not enough people that want to do those jobs, right? Yeah. Each industry is either going to, could have a boom, it could be stable or it could bust. Right. It's almost like having a lot of different kids, right? And someone's happy today, someone's sick. That's what I see in sort of the market. It's like, I know like generalizations are helpful for like people to understand, but I also completely agree that like every situation is so different in so many different ways that at times it needs to be looked at so specifically. I guess I'm also just curious, like long-term, do you ever see VSC becoming a PR firm that always invests in the companies it works for? To me, that would feel natural because you're doing all this work. In, in some ways, I'm like, isn't it more work to have kind of like a set that's investments and a set that's just general clients? It's a great question. I'd say I'd love that to be the case that we could get to that point. We do have a couple companies that are just like big companies, like CIBC works with us and some bigger companies. So I think we'll always have some enterprise companies that want to have a startup mentality yeah. that we know that playbook. But yeah, I think in the future, we should have some shared, like, uh, as we call it, skin in the game in every company. Yeah. We want to get there. That's our goal. The first fund is 21 mil. I think to get to that point, we want to maybe it'd be a 50 million or something bigger where we can afford to do it like that would be amazing. And I think that's our vision. We want to get there. All right. Awesome. We'll come back on the show when the 50 million fund is closed, whenever that does happen. Let's end with some lightning round. I'm working on not responding to each lightning round answer. And I hope that you could just be brief because we'll run through them really fast. Okay. Okay, number one, what is your biggest pet peeve about journalists? You know, maybe complaining about getting too many pitches on Twitter. <laughs> Lips are sealed right now. What is the best advice you've ever gotten about startups? That most of them will fail and rooting for a company to fail or being right that you knew it was going to fail initially is not really that helpful to society. Oh my God. Thank you for saying that. What is one thing you've unlearned about your world recently or your profession recently? Um, I'd say it's a weird one, which is quantity over quality sometimes. Okay. Okay. I, I guess the last one is if you had to sum up 2022 in a headline, what would it be? The hangover. Beautiful. 
Vijay, thank you so much for joining Equity. Tell everyone where they can find you and I'm sure pitch VSC Ventures as well. Sure, vsc.co because we couldn't get the .com <laughs> and vscventures.com. At least your Twitter handle is not as bad as mine. We will link all the things in the show notes. And again, super great to have you. Everyone else, we will chat on Friday about this crazy news week. Bye. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Cal Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week. 